this week on the Backtable Podcast. I mean, don't tell them, it's like, oh yeah, we're going to be able to do a modeling, you know, procedure. It's this is going to be a straightforward case. And then all of a sudden you go in there and the guy has a, you know, 120 degree curvature. You want to make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into. Make sure that both you and the patient are on the same page when it comes to what are the goals of the surgery. Is the goal to make the penis straight like an arrow or is he okay to be what we call functionally straight, right? Um, it's not the same thing for a guy to, to be a 20 degree curvature, which, which most of us have some degree of curvature. So again, you want to make sure that you set those, you know, proper expectations. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source of all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. This is Jose Ocho Silva as your host this week. I'm very excited to have back Dr. Jonathan Clavel. Uh, Dr. Clavel is a men's health specialist and assistant professor of urology at UT Houston. So welcome back, Jonathan. How you been? I've been doing great, man, and I'm excited to be back at the Backtable Urology Podcast. Good. So, so last time we talked about uh, penal implant. You went through your selection process of since the patient comes to your office and has the ED, uh, you talk about other treatments and, and then you go from there about the, about the implant. So, so this time I wanted to do more digging in house your process with more complex cases. Also, uh, talk about some post-op complaints of, or, or common complaints that, that patient say. So, so, so I'm going to start with those. So, so let's talk about post-procedure common complaints. I put up a list and, and I, I wanted to, to have your, your take on this. So let's say it's already six weeks out or eight, eight weeks out and the patient says that the, the, the pump is difficult to, to find uh, or you're having, you're having difficulty pumping it. Uh, what do you tell the patient? It was such a common complaint in my practice that I actually even decided to create a YouTube video and what are the best practices to uh, find the pump, how to locate the pump, how to deflate, how to inflate the pump. And there's multiple, you know, ways to how to, you know, grab it in, in your hand, are you, which fingers to use, which muscles in your forearm to use. Um, and it took me probably about you know, three weeks to, you know, put that video together. And, and again, it, it's paid off a ton. And I've right now, I, I'm, I've been actually to, I've been actually able to decrease the amount of calls that I get um, or text messages in my case, because again, the, most of these guys even have my cell phone. So I, I, that's one of the ways that, I, that I've been able to mitigate those complaints. But yeah, I mean, when the pump is difficult to find, I mean, you just have to sit down with them and you have to explain to them, you know, what is the orientation of the pump? I show them the pump, you know, like the keychain that the company provides. And I show them how to, you know, how it's oriented within their scrotum. One of the best tricks that they can use is warm baths. Cause in the warm bath, the, you know, the warm water will create, it will make the scrotum be a little bit softer. Uh, the scrotum will be saggier and they will be able to feel the parts a lot, a lot better. And again, know your audience. I mean, I try to avoid placing, for example, the coloplast titan implant tends to be a little bit more difficult to deflate because that button tends to be a little bit flatter, especially when you use a one-touch pump. 
So for those guys, I try not to use that pump if I'm using a coloplast or I would just go with the Boston Scientific uh, pump so that they can actually feel for things. So again, I mean, it's just knowing your audience. If you have a really old guy, I try to avoid, you know, placing a difficult pump that they, they're going to struggle with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, then you, you can try, you think where you're doing the procedure is perfect and then it retracts or, you know, let's say it's, it's six months after the procedure and they still having issues. What, 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 what do you do then? So it really depends. I mean, if I, if I notice that the pump is not well placed or, or if it's too posterior, I mean, we can try placing it more like anteriorly. Like me, for example, whenever I place my pumps, I try to place them right on the front of the scrotum because when, when they're very posterior, especially on older guys, it's going to be more difficult for them to find it. For younger guys, I mean, they, they, they get it. Um, it's not rocket science for them, so yeah. they're able to, to make it work. But I mean, sometimes you just have to reposition it. And I mean, if it becomes an issue that they cannot, you know, work it at all, you have two options. You can leave the device kind of like 80% inflated for them, or you can just switch them out to a malleable. Um, okay. Of course, that's the last resort. And I, sometimes I have the local reps from the companies, they come in and they, you know, they sit down with the patient, they're here in my office and they can spend, you know, 30 minutes with them trying to explain to them how to make it work. Good, good. And it's a good, good thing that you mentioned the malleable. I mean, I, I don't use it that much, but mm -hmm. there's some patients that, that, that that's the way to go in order to prevent any problems. Let's put it this way. I just recently, probably about, you know, six or seven months ago, I had this patient who everything, you know, he came into the office, he requested the inflatable penile implant, we put it in and then post-op, I find, I know, I, I find out that he comes in for his post-op appointment. I teach him how to use it. I, I send him the video for him to start, you know, uh, cycling the implant. And then two weeks later, the guy comes back for teaching. I teach him again. I'm like, well, fine, whatever. And then three weeks later, he comes back again. And I'm like, wait, what's going on? And what I find out is the guy's ha is having early Alzheimer's. And I didn't even know yeah. from prior to the, to the surgery. And right now the guy has already showed up to my office like five times. So those are the types yeah. of things that you have to be aware of. I mean, if you have a guy who still, I mean, I'm not going to prohibit him from getting a penile prosthesis, but you have to be very aware, especially if they're single, they don't have somebody who can inflate the, or cycle the implant for them. You have, it has to be uh, kept in your radar that you should probably, you know, place a malleable for these guys. Exactly. And, and I guess at the end of the day, you, you, you find the, how the hard way. Exactly. <laughs> so, and, and for the patients, I have a, a few that, that comes and say, Hey, the, the, the tubing is either visible or, or I feel discomfort right there in the tubing. How long do you wait? What do you tell the patient? Do you have a video for them also of that? <laughs> <laughs> I do not have a video for okay, visible okay. tubing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but one of the things that I, that I try to do is uh, at the time of surgery, if I, if I feel like the tubing is very long, I try to, you know, adjust it right there and then. I mean, it will take you, yes, an extra 10 minutes or, five, you know, five to 10 minutes for you to cut the tubing to the actual length, reconnect it. I mean, it's a hassle. But I would rather have a hassle of 10 minutes in the operating room than having a guy complaining that you, and then you have to come take him back to the operating room, operating room for that. So I try to avoid that at all costs if I can. However, there are some guys that will still complain about it. It, it really depends on is a pump sitting well or is a pump actually high riding in the scrotum? And that's why they okay. feel it. Sometimes they can start forming scar tissue. 
uh, that will cause that tubing to be more palpable. And sometimes you can just readjust that. I mean, if it's something, if it's been more than three months, three to six months, and they're still complaining about that, I just try to, re, you know, to, to go back in there and try to adjust things for them. You will just either cut the, the tubing, you, you wouldn't change any, uh, the entire piece. Uh, if it's not infected, you just change the tubing. Or, that is or correct. Usually, I, okay. usually, I mean, most of the time I, I would just, uh, you know, cut the pump out and just place a new pump. Um, if it's just from the tubing okay. from the pump. Sometimes I've had guys who complain about the tubing right at the base of the penis for, you know, where it connects yeah. into the, to the reservoir. And sometimes for those, I've been able to uh, go directly there, make a small incision in that area and try to get it deeper and get tissues to cover that. So again, sometimes you don't have to take everything out and replace it. It's just a matter of, of making, you know, doing something so that it feels comfortable for these guys. And you mentioned the high riding uh, 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 pump. Sometimes I feel that the, the tubing goes like along the, the, the implant or, or the corpora, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then it comes down. I don't mm -hmm. know if you can do a release of that tubing. I mean, is, is that something that we can, that, that is, can be done? I mean, th those things can actually be avoided sometimes. Um, again, okay. we have to be very conscious of what is your proximal measurement. If your proximal measurement, for example, is more than 10 centimeters, you want, you know, you, you should consider, you know, placing a rear tip extender to make, especially for the coloplast device, because now the, the AMS device, it has a longer tubing and they made that longer tubing just to avoid us surgeons from placing and, you know, being obligated to place, uh, those rear tip extenders. So again, it's just being conscious of, of what are your proximal measurements. I mean, if you have a guy who's 14 centimeters proximal don't, and, and he's, uh, whatever, let's say eight centimeters distal, don't put in a 21 plus one, because it's probably, he's probably going to be struggling. Uh, th that pup is probably going to be a little bit high riding. So just try to make sure that you dissect lower to make sure that okay. you get you know, that proximal corporotomy as proximal as possible. And that will, uh, avoid you from, from having that high riding pump. So definitely. So usually like a standard, more than 10 centimeters, think about extenders rather than go bigger and avoid extenders. Yeah. So it, it really depends on where you're making your, your decision. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. the incision. Uh, cause me, for example, whenever I measure, I usually measure right in between my corporotomy. My corporotomies tend to be a little bit bigger and I do that on purpose, uh, just to make sure that I don't struggle to place the implant in. But you want to make sure that that the apex, that proximal apex of that corporotomy is less than 10 centimeters. Um, and if you are able to get that, man, you're, you're not going to struggle at all. Uh, and you shouldn't be having uh, those, you know, those high riding pumps. Because again, you don't Perfect. want the pump to be either be too long and then exactly. you have to, then you have to be cutting tubings and readjusting things for you. So I think we, 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 we cut, well, uh, another question. So a uh, patient says that the, the penis sticks out of the, of his clothing. You feel it and, and it's deflated. I mean, they're, they're used to having more flaccid, but now they, it's sticking out. They tell you, Hey, I'm usually I'm using a tape to tape it to, to, to the suprapubic area, uh, infrapubic area. Sorry. I mean, what do you tell in those cases or, or, or do you tell them in advance something so that they can expect <laughs> it? What? I mean, th those tend to be a little bit, you know, difficult to manage post-op. So if you, if I have a guy who, when I do the stretch test before the surgery and I see, and I notice that the penis is big, I mean, you know, which guy, I mean, as urologists, we know which guys have bigger penises than others. Right? So if you have a guy who has a, you know, a really big penis, I will tell them, it's like, Hey man, just so you know, 
the penile implant will keep your penis on stretch at all times. It's going to be a little bit more difficult for you to be, to be able to adjust it, but it's still, you know, you're still going to be able to adjust it. There are ways that they can uh, avoid it from showing. For example, one of my patients, uh, what he recommended was using biker shorts, especially if he's going to be wearing tight, you know, pants. Because biker shorts, again, it's a strong spandex. It will help keep everything nice and concealed. And that way it's not, you know, people are not going to notice that he has, that he, that he has, you know, a big penis, for example. Yeah. Maybe that's all he, he wants. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. He wants to go around like that. Those complaints are actually less common. Uh, yes, you, you yeah. can have some guys who will complain about autoinflation. Uh, for those patients that complain that the, imp that the implant is autoinflating, I tell them, like, hey man, it is, you know, a 1% risk that it can happen, but it can still happen. For those, especially if you're using the coloplast device, make sure that, you know, when you're, when you're placing the reservoir, that the, that the lockout valve of that reservoir is not hitting against the pubic bone because it will cause autoinflation. And then for the AMS, I mean, that it's less common for that to happen. But again, it's one of those risks that can happen and they just have to, you know, deal with it in a sense, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so Jonathan, uh, what about patients that, for example, they, they had history of priapism, uh, sickle cell patients, any pearls on those, on those cases? I mean, even though they're, they're naive, what would you expect on those, uh, or, or, or what somebody like me, uh, that doesn't do much of those cases, what, 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 what can you, can I expect? I mean, when it comes to these guys who have difficult anatomies, I mean, the, probably the first, the first thing I want to disclose and probably one very important thing is like, you know, that in Spanish we have a saying like nadie nace sabiendo or no yeah. one was born <laughs> knowing everything. I mean, so just yesterday I saw a quote, uh, that I wish to share with everybody here today. It's like all great surgeons were once new surgeons. Uh, we all learn from others' experiences and research and mentorship. And when in doubt, I mean, I just ask for help, seek advice from your mentors who set yourself up for success. I mean, if you do not feel comfortable doing a specific procedure or you do not know how to do something, refer the patient to someone else, you do not need to operate on everyone. I remember when I was in, in fellowship, uh, one of my mentors told me that it's like, Hey, remember you do not need to operate on everyone. And in most cases you have one time to make it right. So as you gain experience, you will start to feel more comfortable doing these complex procedures. And I mean, that's probably the best way to set, you know, to make sure that you set yourself up for success early on. And this way we will all be successful regarding priapism specifically. I mean, in my opinion, again, this is my personal opinion. When it comes to priapism, it's all about two things, the severity and the timing, right? If you have a patient who responds to medical therapy, it should not be that difficult to place a prosthesis. Uh, but if you have a patient who has had multiple procedures done to correct his priapism, for example, these chronic sickle cell patients who've had multiple T shunts and, and multiple, uh, you know, even proximal shunts, and they have these stuttering priapisms, those cases are going to be a little bit more difficult. In those cases, timing is everything, in my opinion. Um, for example, it is not the same thing to treat a patient early on after his priapism episode, let's say weeks versus one who had it six months ago or another one who had it three years ago. The longer it has been since his priapism episode, the more scar tissue, I mean, I will expect at the time of surgery and specifically with ischemic priapism, it will cause, I mean, it, we all know it will cause extensive fibrosis inside those corporal tissues. And for these cases, you have to throw the kitchen sink at them 
Uh, you need to be prepared to try multiple things in order to get a penile prosthesis in. And when you ask for pearls, I have five different pearls. For example, pearl number one, education, set proper expectations. It is unlikely that the patient will have the same erection he had to prior his, to prior to his priapism episode. Explain that the goal is to get any prosthesis in there. You cannot guarantee that you will be able to get a fully sized implant. Uh, sometimes the only thing you will be able to get in will be a narrow base or a CXR. And in those cases, I mean, I tell them like, Hey man, there, there might be a possibility that I might only be able to get a narrow base implant. Once you place that narrow base, they're going to start cycling the implant. If they're not happy with that, when they start cycling that implant regularly, it will expand the tissues inside. And then when you, you can come back several months later and you will be able to get a bigger implant in, uh, pearl number two. If you were the one who took care of the priapism or the patient was referred to you early on after his priapism episode, try to get him on your schedule as soon as possible. Remember, timing is everything. Getting an implant in sooner will be easier than waiting several months to a year later. If he had a distal shunt and he has incisions in his glands, I would wait for those incisions to heal before, before I get an implant in. And as soon as those incisions heal, I mean... Let's say six to eight weeks since his, you know, usually those incisions will heal within six to eight weeks. And at that time, I bring him back, uh, you know, for, you know, for the penile prosthesis. Uh, I've had several patients who have been referred to me from local urologists who did a T-shirt, for example, or they did an Algarab um, or Burnett snake procedure in which they just place a Hagar all the way down to the bone. We know that those guys are very yeah. unlikely to have, you know, natural erections again. And I tell them, like, hey, man, as soon as that heals, I see them, let's say, you know, two, three weeks after their, their episode, they still have scar tissue. They still have their, you know, stitches in the glands. And I tell them, like, hey, man, we're going to wait for this to heal and we're getting you on the schedule today. And that way, by, by, as soon as those, those incisions heal, we're, we're on the schedule to get that implant in. Is there more risk of, of, of uh, extrusion in those cases? I mean, in theory, yes. Um, I've done it twice already. Um, okay. and you know, both patients have done very well. Of course, you know, for, for that, for those type of patients, you are not going to oversize their okay. implant. Um, uh, make sure, I mean, I will not place a malleable implant on those patients. because again, there is a, a higher risk of extrusion, um, and erosion on, on guys who have malleable implants. Uh, so I would be very conservative. But I will, I mean, you can get an implant there and they should be okay. Probably the third pearl would be if for any reason you need to wait longer to get the implant. And this is probably the best advice I can give everyone who's listened to this vacuum erection device during the pre-op phase, uh, using a vacuum pump every day, twice a day will create negative pressure inside the corporal bodies, bring venous blood, and it will keep the corporal space open. Aggressive VED therapy is key to set yourself up for success with these patients. It will help dilate the tissues and allow you to maximize the size of the implant. Pearl number four, again, come ready to your surgery. Be ready to be bringing in all your drilling tools. Um, you will be drilling inside those corpus to break down that fibrosis. Make sure you have all the instruments you might need. For example, one of the ones that I use the most is uh, the Rosselló Carrion uh, cavernotomes. There's people who use the Euromix cavernotomes. I also use Metzenbound scissors. There's also a video about this, by the way, on YouTube. <laughs> okay, good. good. Um, so Metzenbound scissors. Uh, there's people who use reverse cutting scissors. 
Uh, there, there's a, a special dilator called the dilate. I think it's the dilamesinsert. Yeah, dilamesinsert dilator. Um, that one, this one comes with a blunt tip that you can use for straightforward cases, and it also comes in with a pointed tip. I don't use that. I, uh, I see it and I, and it makes me cringe. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm in a medieval movie, <laughs> but again, it's something that can definitely be handy, uh, uh in, in some cases. And the last pro would be if you are unable to dilate through the proximal incision, be ready to either use a counter incision. It's very common for these cases or be ready to just extend your incision. I mean, if you're going penoscrotal, just extend your incision distally and your corporotomies distally in order to properly dilate to avoid distal injury. The one thing you don't want to do is be forcefully dilating because you will either injure the urethra, you will cross over, or you will just perforate through the side. Again, these are things that I've seen and you want to make sure that you set up yourself up for success. So again, don't, this, these are going to be long, tough cases. Just be ready for to, to do a little bit of everything. Yeah, and I guess if you make the decision to go in and and and, and you see something you don't expect it, just it's okay to close and send it to to Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've I've actually I've actually had those. I remember I will never forget yeah, so. when I when I was in fellowship, there was a surge a local surgeon who wasn't able to you know to dilate uh, distally, and the guy just you know, he put in a very small, like a 15 centimeter implant, and the guy probably needed like 24 centimeters or something. Oh, oh yeah, and I'm like. Don't do that. <laughs> I mean, if you can't dial it, just close him up. Just and close just, him up, okay. And, and just refer him to somebody who, who, you know, who will be able to take care of this guy. Again, you don't have to operate on everyone. It is not a sign of weakness to ask for help. Exactly. And just, you know, do the right thing for the patient. And so, so um, for patients that have Peronis, I mean, either, either after using Trimix or whatever the reason is, how do you prepare for those cases? Uh, are you, do you try to do a modeling? Do you know beforehand that you're already going to do a, a graph? I mean, it, for, I, for Peronis, man, we can, we can have a full two-hour podcast <laughs> <laughs> about Peronis disease. But yeah, when it comes to Peronis, again, it's similar to priapism cases. I make sure to set proper expectations. I mean, you assess the severity of the curvature. Make sure that you have at least an idea of how bad that curvature is. I mean, don't tell them, it's like, oh yeah, we're going to be able to do a modeling, you know, procedure. It's this is going to be a straightforward case. And then all of a sudden you go in there and the guy has a, you know, 120 degree curvature. You want to make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into. Make sure that both you and the patient are on the same page when it comes to what are the goals of the surgery. Is the goal to make the penis straight like an arrow or is he okay to be what we call functionally straight, right? Um, it's not the same thing for a guy to, to be a 20 degree curvature, which, which most of us have some degree of curvature. So again, you want to make sure that you set those, you know, proper expectations. It's his goal to get back as much length as possible. You need to make sure he understands what are the risks involved and what are the expectations to set yourself up for success. So in a scenario, for example, like you mentioned, like if, if the patient has like a 90 degree curvature, like severe curvature. And who, and he also has erectile dysfunction. I try to fix everything at the time of the implant surgery. There are different ways we can do this. Uh, most of the time, again, with these severe curvatures, just placing the implant is not going to be enough. For example, a guy who has a, you know, a mild curvature, like those with a 45 degree, you can probably get away with just placing the implant and do, you know, very mild manual modeling. 
uh, or probably do the Paul Pareto. He uses a scratch technique in which he, uh, from inside the corpora, you can actually get a nasal speculum inside the, the corporotomy. And then he uses either a 12 blade that has like a little hook or the tip of medicine bound scissors. You can just scratch the, in, the, the, that plaque from the inside. And sometimes you're able, you're going to be able to, uh, to model then later and the penis will actually be kind of straight. Um, I've used it before. You can actually bill for that. Just like I just, uh, oh, really, well, you can, you can bill for that. Just like if it was an incision of the, of the Peroni's plaque, it's just doing it from the inside instead yeah. of from the outside. So again, you know, but however, if, if there is a patient who has severe curvature, if it's 60 degrees or more, I personally prefer to do a plaque incision with or without grafting. Uh, there's two approaches you can use to do this. Most people use a circumcision incision. They deglove the penis in order to access a tunica. If you need to uh, do, you know, elevate the neurovascular bundle for dorsal plaques, you can do so. If you need to, you know, for ventral plaques and you need to, you know, elevate the urethra, you can definitely do so. Uh, me personally, I prefer to use a ventral incision. So instead of degloving the penis, I actually just, you know, make an incision right uh, along that ventral rafe okay. and I'm able to expose everything. There's also a video on YouTube about that. Perfect. Um, and, and you can actually, uh, elevate both, you know, the skin, dartos and the neurovascular bundle all together. This way we can keep the, the skin attached to the glands at all times. And theoretically, we could avoid the risk of glands ischemia. I mean, there was a study back in 2017, for example, that looked at the risk factors for cases with glands ischemia. And they had 17 patients who had glands ischemia with PL prosthesis placement. And out of those 17 patients, 86% had a circumcision with the gloving. So wow. for this reason, when, we, when I was in, in, in my fellowship, uh, Dr. Wong, who's my mentor, uh, and I, we published approaching these cases with the use of a ventral non-degloving incision. And then another thing that I personally do for these cases when it's severe curvatures and they do not have, you know, the, the plaque is not calcified and there's no hourglass deformity, I would, instead of doing one incision at the point of maximal curvature, I do multiple incisions. And instead of going at the point of maximal curvature, I should go around it. And that way... With multiple incisions, I, the, those incisions are going to be smaller. And most of the time, I don't even have to place a graft. I'm actually, I actually plan to present uh, my findings. Uh, I, I, I've done you know, more than 35 cases, I believe, now using this approach. And I'm actually presenting, the, presenting it next month uh, in this year's SMSNA meeting. So, so you're not doing suitors, you're just doing the incisions. So I, yeah, that is correct. So whenever, because okay. again, whenever we're placing a penile prosthesis, whenever we do peroneus cases and, we're, and you're doing a plaque incision with, with grafting, again, the biggest risk with that one is erectile dysfunction. Yeah. The good thing about, uh, about these guys who also need a penile prosthesis, you don't have to worry about that. Exactly. Uh, so in sometimes if the defect is less than two centimeters, uh, in, you know, in size, you can get away without having to place a graft. So what I do is, because again, if you have a guy who has severe curvatures, again, 90 degrees, you know, 100 degree curvatures, even 75 degree curvatures, then you make an incision at the point of maximal curvature. When you get that penis straight, you will have a very large defect that you're probably going to have to graft. And in order for me to avoid that, what I started doing was making multiple smaller incisions. And all those incisions are probably a centimeter, a centimeter and a half. Again, you have to close the neurovascular bundle. You have to close uh, bugs. You have to close dartos, and all those will 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 serve 
enough, they will serve as a scaffold to be able to cover those defects and you don't have to worry about placing a graft. That being said, nowadays we have different types of graft. There are these hemostatic patches, for example, tackle seal is one of them. That's the one, the most common one that I use. And the good thing about it is you don't have to worry about sewing a graft because we all know that whenever we do these pleuronies cases and you have to sew a graft, that's 30 minutes <laughs> that you have to add into yeah. your surgery in order for you to get that water tight, right? So I am one that what I use is a tacosyl graft whenever I need to use it, specifically for these pleuronies and erectile dysfunction cases that I'm using a PL implant. So, so you will then put the implant and see what you have left left of after you you put a when you 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 put the implant you inflate it and then you see if there's a big gap you will close those or, or or yes yes so okay. again it really depends on what is your approach many surgeons what they do is they place the implant first and then they do the reconstruction I I don't do it that way I do my reconstruction first. And then I place the implant at the end because again, I don't want to expose. I don't want the the implant to be exposed for a long time because yeah. that can increase the risk of infection. Um, so okay. I would place the implant. I would test it, and if the defect is not that big, I just close them. And and again, I haven't had you know erosions. I haven't had uh, any guys who have uh, herniations of herniation, the, exactly or aneurysm, and, and they've done very well. And I wanted to ask you for, for patients that, that you just also in the, in the post-op uh, period, let's say a patient comes to, I mean, after you do the implant, everything is working fine, but they say that, that it's pointing downward, that it doesn't go up. And when you see in the anatomy, it's just because of the fat pad, it's all over the penis. I mean, man, <laughs> I, I, I will never forget it. When I was in training, I was in fellowship. There was one guy who, I mean, he even threatened my mentor to, to sue him, uh, all because the, because this, his penis was just like you're saying, it's like, it's pointing down, it's not pointing up. Um, and he's upset about that. Um, and we told him, it's like, Hey man, this is on you. I mean, you are the one who has that big fat pad that's just creating weight on top of that implant. So now ever since we had that horrible experience during fellowship, I tell all my patients whenever they have you know, a large fat pad, I tell them, like, hey man, this might create weight on your implant and it will, it, your penis is not going to look like the mannequin. <laughs> so, <laughs> so again, I mean, for, for those, it's, it's just about trying to avoid these types of scenarios. Uh, cause these guys can sometimes be very difficult to manage. Every patient with a large pad, I will try to set expectations prior to the surgery. Assuming the patient was properly sized, that there, there are several thick tricks that we can try. Uh, there, I mean, I know like carry on, he, uh, Rafael Carrion, he, he published an article, uh, several years ago about placing an implant and at the same time, removing that superpubic fat pad. I mean, you can do that. I don't do that. I usually tell them like, Hey, you can see a plastic surgeon, uh, for, you know, for you to do this just because I don't want to be dealing with it, you know, post-op at. Exactly. Uh, and, and you can also try a ventrophalloplasty for guys who are complaining, you know, worried about their size. Uh, it's like, Hey, my penis looks smaller. Uh, and I tell them like, Hey man, and I usually push the fat when, once the implants in, I push the fat pad all against their bone. And I'm like, you can see you have about three inches underneath, underneath your skin. Um, yeah. and again, and I try to tell them like, Hey man, when you're having sex, your partner will be creating pressure on top of that. So you will be able to penetrate more than what it actually looks like. And there's also another technique that we can use is called a dorsal phalloplasty. 
Uh, this was a technique developed by a, by a surgeon in Egypt. His, his name is Dr. Shair, and he places sutures from the dermis of the suprapubic fat pad, you know, that skin, and then he tacks it down to the periosteum of the pubic bone. And with, you know, with those stitches, it's basically just like pulling the skin around the shaft down. He's able to expose the penis a little bit more. It will still be looking down, but again, at least it looks like they have a bigger penis. Okay. Good to know. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that one. So, so I need, I need to, to, to take a look at that one. That just in <laughs> case that, that one, if, especially if it's a redo case, it is painful. <laughs> okay. So, so forget it. I'll send it to you. <laughs> I, I remember I once had a guy who's like, oh, yeah, let's do it. I'm like, oh, what am I doing here? <laughs> so, Jonathan, you mentioned redos. So, in terms of redos, I mean, at some point, do you do an MRI or any special imaging? Uh, or, or you just go straight into exchanging the, the, it depends on the situation? Or? Yeah, the, it really depends on what you're expecting and how curious you really are. I mean, if there is something that you cannot explain with the physical exam, then it is always wise to obtain imaging. An MRI could definitely help, especially if it's something... Uh, within the corporal bodies, uh, if, and then if the patient had the implant done by someone else and needs a revision, um, I would always recommend to get a CT scan at least to make sure to know exactly where that reservoir is located. Yeah. So let's say, let's say uh, uh, you you have a patient uh, simple redo. Let's say the the, the patient the the, the, P, the IPP is not it's not working anymore. How's the process of just a, a simple excision? of that and replacement. Do you go also ventral, I mean, uh, penoscrotal approach? What do you do there? So it depends. Um, it just think, I mean, one thing that everybody needs to understand, I mean, all surgeons out there listening to this podcast is that you do whatever you feel comfortable with. If the patient had an infrapubic, you know, implant, you can take it out and replace it through a penoscrotal incision. And vice versa, if the patient had the penoscrotal implant, you can still take it out through a infrapubic incision. Um, yes, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a little bit different, but it's not, it's really not that difficult. That's one thing. The other good thing about going, you know, through the other approaches, all the tissues will be virgin. For example, if the patient had the implant, I mean, I love to have guys who, who had their implants originally placed through the infrapubic approach, and then I go in to do my, my revision and everything, all the tissue planes are virgin, right? Uh, so again, it's going to be a lot easier to do that. You just do whatever's you know, comfortable for you. And do you tend to remove all the, that fibrous tissue around the capsule, for example, around the, the pump? Do you tend to, to remove that or, or do you actually use it to put the, the new pump there? I mean, oh. so it's, so sometimes, I mean, I'm going to be really honest with you. I, if it's something that looks, you know, that's very prominent and very hard and fi you know, fibrous in texture, I would try to take it out, at least some of it. I don't take all of it out. Sometimes I just ignore it. The one thing though that I, that I would say is that I try to place the pump in a different spot, you know, in a different uh, pocket. So I will create a new pocket and make sure that there's no contact between that capsule and the new pump. And in terms of the of the reservoir, how, how aggressive are you removing it in this patient that, that is not infected? So again, for those, it really depends. One, if I wasn't the one who placed it originally, again, I would reiterate, get imaging to see it, to see if it is actually accessible for you. Are there any surrounding structures? How close is it to the bladder? How close is it to the iliacs? I mean, does the patient have 
a hernia repair on the other side that I won't be able to access. If so, I will try to take it out in order to place a new reservoir in that same space. If the implant malfunctioned within two years, I would probably reuse that same reservoir, especially if you're going to be using the same, you know, company. Uh, if it's, if it was a previous AMS implant, I would just, you know, try to reuse the same uh, reservoir if it's been within two or three years. I am one, again, this is just my personal opinion. I try to take it out, uh, but if it is really deep and I am really, really struggling to take it out, sometimes the best thing is to just drain, you know, dra take all the fluid out and just retain it and just leave it there. Again, just be conscious of where it's located. Because again, if the, the only downside to that is if the, the new implant now gets infected and you need to take everything out, trying to find that you will definitely need to do uh, a counter incision, but I would rather do a counter incision later on without risking injury to major structures than being too aggressive during your revision case for something that's probably not going to cause any problems uh, down the road. And then you end up, you know, regretting it. So again, drain and retain is something that's definitely uh, feasible. It's something that we can definitely do safely. Again, drain, if in doubt, just drain the reservoir and leave it in place. Okay. And there's always, I mean, talk about infection versus erosion and, 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 and sometimes there's a fine line. I mean, uh, as long as the patient doesn't have any systemic symptoms, mm -hmm. uh, but taking, I mean, what do you, when do you say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to put a new one, uh, in an, let's say, uh, uh, uh the pump is, is eroding through the scrotum. Versus an infection, or or when do you take make that decision to just exchange everything at that moment, or just take it out and then come back on another occasion? I mean, it really depends on how bad you know the that infection is. If there's gross, you know, gross pus leaking out. I mean, if if there's pus, uh, I usually try to take everything out, remove it. Then I would have a conversation before the surgery with the patient with what are the risks. Any patient who has an infection. I tell them, okay, we have three options. I can take everything out and come back another day. I can, you know, take everything out, place it malleable, right? Wash everything out, place it malleable. But you have about a 15, 20% chance that this is going to fail. And then we, and then I can also take everything out, replace it with a three-piece uh, inflatable implant again. But you have about a 50% chance at best that this can, that, that this can work, uh, that, that, that we, this can eventually work. And usually I let the patients decide as long as they're aware of what they're getting themselves into, uh, we can, we can make, uh, we can make it happen. Uh, you don't always have to, I mean, it is possible. I mean, I just want to rephrase this. It is possible to replace it with a three piece. I've done it before and they've done well. Of course, in these patients, I will, I need to make sure what infection we're dealing with, what that culture showed. And I will keep them on antibiotics probably for a little bit longer, maybe two or three weeks rather than just one week afterwards. And also, and of course, also evaluate what are the risk factors. If this guy's like an uncontrolled diabetic, I mean, don't shoot yourself in the foot. If yeah. the guy's healthy and doesn't have any risk factors for infection, then it's something that we can definitely uh, consider. And in those cases, you do a, a watch out, you, you try to remove the biofilm. Uh, what, what, what techniques do you use to, to, to clean those corporas? So I am one that I do a uh, washout. I use Irrecept, uh, that has chlorexidine. Uh, it's like, I think it's like 0.05%. Uh, 
Uh, so I use uh, I use Irrecept with antibiotic solution. I'm just basically alternating you know, alternating both. I have a, a really good friend, Dr. Alex Tatum in Indianapolis. He uses another uh, solution called chlorpactin, uh, which is also it's basically like bleach but tissue friendly. I want to use that in in the hospitals where I work at. They just don't have it available yet. Um, and as soon as we have it available, I'm definitely going to start using it. I do not use betadine. I do not use hydrogen peroxide. I believe these will damage the tissues and they're really not that great. Uh, so again, I use whatever is available, but again, it's just a matter of actually irrigating those tissues more than what you're actually irrigating it with. So the most important thing is you make sure that you wash out everything very well. I do not remove all the biofilm. For example, I mean, sometimes I place you know, for these infected implants, I wash everything out very well and I place the implant within that same surgical capsule inside the corporas. There is, uh, you know, Dr. Shair, again, the guy, for that, that doctor from yeah. Egypt, Egypt. Uh, he, he also uh, used the extra capsule or tunneling. So basically creating a new space behind that capsule in order to avoid contact uh, of the new implant with the surgical capsule. And that's something that works for him. Uh, in several cases that he that he published. So again, there's multiple things that we can try. Uh, for example, another thing like for these infected IPPs, uh, uh, you know, Carry On, he, he publishes Carry On Cast, which is basically like a spacer. What, what he uses with that is a solution called Stimulin, which is calcium sulfate, and you can actually combine it with antibiotic solution. So it's like a powder that you just get, combine it with vancomycin or tobromycin or whatever other powder uh, antibiotic, you mix everything together, you get the water in uh, or, or saline, and it will create uh, this paste that forms like a cast. Um, and that this cast usually dissolves within six weeks. So basically you can leave that cast in there and come back six weeks later. So it will create uh, like a spacer inside to make sure that that, that that corporal tissue doesn't collapse and start causing fibrosis. So whenever you come back, it's going to be easier for you to get an implant in. That being said, it's easier said than done. Um, I, I I believe that right now he's working on a new protocol to to yeah. see how he can optimize that because you have like a five minute window to get that cast in, and it will create a mess <laughs> if you don't yeah. if you don't do it quickly. Yeah, well, I was in residency. I I did. I think we was to call up. I don't remember, but I was with him or a couple of cases, and I saw and definitely it. At that time, it was 10 years ago or nine years ago. And it was actually, we were injecting in the same as syringe. And mm -hmm. sometimes it will calcify in the same in the syringe. In the syringe, yeah. So it wasn't as easy, the, the application. I mean, definitely, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he has by now uh, uh, make it better or, or easier for, for up to apply, but it, it, it wasn't that easy. I know, I know. And there, I know there's people that, uh, like one of his previous fellows, Dr. Aaron Loeb, he's right now in Cleveland. Uh, so if he's listening to this, Hi, man. Uh, <laughs> um, so one of the things that he that he started using, for example, was uh, a chest tube, and he would get you know the that paste, you know the, all the the stimulant with the antibiotics inside the inside it, and then he would cut the that chest tube into little pieces, take the actual plastic from the chest tube out, and they just start getting these pieces inside the corporal tissue. That being said, it's easier said than done. Yeah. Um, and it's really not that fun to, to do it. So again, I, I did, I remember I did one in fellowship and it was such a headache that I'm like, mm, 
I mean, fortunately, my infection rate is very low, so I don't exactly. have to be I don't have to be dealing with these cases often. And in those cases, uh, what what broad spectrum antibiotic will you give them? So I usually try to keep them, you know, something similar. Of course, if you have a guy who comes into your office, he you see that there's pus, get a culture right there in your office, send that out for a culture, so you know what you're dealing with, and that way you can tailor your uh, antibiotics to cover for that bacteria specifically. If it's still broad spectrum, I would still do you know the the regular vanc and gent. Sometimes I uh, I combine it with vancomycin and sozin uh, mm-hmm. instead of the gentamicin. Um, and I also put in an antifungal because again, you can also get these fungal infections and we're not, you know, that we're not paying attention to. At the time of the surgery, the first thing that I do as soon as I make my incision, I get a swab of that, you know, tissue or send a little bit of that biofilm tissue out for culture to make sure that you know what you're dealing with in case that you have to come back in the future you know, six weeks, three months down the road to get an implant in, you know what bacteria, you know, was in there and what and what resistance that bacteria had. And for those cases that you have extrusion through the through either the glands or the urethra, will you put a, a, a another one at the same time? Will you close the defect and come back on another time? Depends. If the this is again, this is all my opinion. Yeah. Uh, do not take this as scripture. No, no, I mean, no, the, yeah. <laughs> These cases are extremely rare. So again, we, we are still learning. But if there is a complete extrusion, right? There's a complete erosion that I can actually see the, the implant. If it's through the glands, it is very unlikely that I will place an implant in again. If it's in contact with the urethra, I would not, again, this is just me, I would not place an implant back in, in that, at least in that side. If it's on the side, Right. If it's like, you know, on the actual side of the shaft, if there is no gross signs of infection, I would just, you know, wash everything out and I, c- I would place an implant in and just close it. And I would just keep that implant deflated until everything heals. Sometimes one other thing that we can that we can do is let's say that it eroded into the urethra, um, but there's no gross signs of infection and it's only one side that eroded. You can take that side out and just leave that other side, you know, the, let's say that the right side eroded, you can leave the left implant, the left cylinder inside. And sometimes you can actually get away with it. And I've seen guys in my office, again, not my patients, but I've seen guys who've had implants done before that they have one cylinder and they're happy with it. So again, they can still be functional with one cylinder. Uh, So again, sometimes it's just a matter of setting proper expectations and telling them, hey man, we just want to get you functional. We, this is not for you to be you know, feeling like when you were 20 years old, it's just trying to get you functional and we can always come back and fight another day. And I think that's, that's the, the most important talk, that expectation at first, because they always see the videos on, well, they, they go to, you, to YouTube, not, not, not your channel, but just Boston <laughs> Scientific, for example, they, the, they see the, 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 the video, great erection, just like they were 20, back 20 years old and, and say, hey, that, that, that's not true. I mean, like I said, it's, it's a matter of just being functional. Are you, do, are you doing drainage on those patients? Uh, let, let's say you do a washout, you put a new implant. Do you do liver drainage? Yes, I would. De- for for those patients, I would definitely. I mean, even if I don't leave an implant in, I would leave a drain in okay. for several days because again, do, those you are washing them out a lot. Uh, you're using a lot of fluid, 
you want to make sure that you set yourself up for success. You don't want these guys to have edema and then, you know, the edema accumulates into a pocket and then you have a pocket of fluid that will, that could potentially get infected. Uh, so for those, I would usually just leave a drain in. Yes. Let's talk about an interesting topic. And, and sometimes, I mean, for, for me, it has happened right there in the OR. Those patients that have a hypermobile glands or, and, and you see that uh, SSD deformity, uh, the condor, if you didn't know about this prior to the surgery, uh, would you do any corrected at the moment and just tell them, hey, I had to do another incision? It's very tricky. Um, the, we actually, uh, with, it was Toby Kohler, Paul Pareto, and myself, we did a combination cohort uh, about two years ago in which we looked at how frequent that glands hypermobility was. Again, we were three experts combining data. We knew that we were dilating to the max. And sometimes you will still have these guys, just like you're saying, that they still have these hypermobile glands. And then we looked at, should we be fixing these at the time of surgery or should we just observe them? And the true answer to that is like, it really depends on the surgeon. I am one that it really depends on how bad it is. Um, if it's mild, uh, and we actually even put it that we had like a grading system on how bad that hypermobile glance was. Um, if it's mild, sometimes I would just leave it because sometimes they do well and they don't have, they, they're not, you know, they're not going to complain about it. I also take into consideration, believe it or not, is their insurance status. If I have a guy who's paying out of pocket that I know that I don't want him to have to pay another few extra thousand dollars to get into the operating room uh, to come back and fix it. For those guys, I would have a lower threshold to fix them right there and then versus a guy who's older, who's, again, the guy's just super excited to have his uh, implant, you know, his implant. He did, really doesn't care on how it looks. He just wants to be able to have intimacy with his wife and he has insurance. Usually for those guys, I might actually just leave it if it's just mild. Uh, if it's severe, I will definitely fix it. Cause again, I want, I, I, and I would just, you know, explain to them like, Hey man, just like you're saying, I would, uh, I would just tell them like, Hey man, we, I had to make a second incision and we had to get that, uh, we needed to fix that in order for you to be able to, for you to be happier. And will that give, I mean, let's say you don't correct it. Uh, they, they still have the, the mobility will, uh, have a mobility. They will, it will pull you a risk of any tunica rupture or something like that, or, or any, uh, Exclusion at some point, assuming that is that is a true hypermobile glance. I mean, sometimes if it's chronic, some and and you can and the implant is actually going towards the skin of the shaft, you will have an impending erosion. Um, so you have to be aware of those of those cases. Um, again, usually those are guys who have who tend to have a worse hypermobility, right? Uh, and and so sometimes these guys are undersized. I mean, I've seen many, many guys who come in, you know, to see me. It's like, hey, doc, I have the SST deformity. And when I see them, it's like, they yeah, have undersized. Like two, two, three centimeters off. Yeah. Um, and for those guys, again, you want to be able to fix them because uh, if they start using that implant, it will create an impending erosion. And now that we're actually talking about impending erosion, so I'm, not, I'm not sure if we've talked about it, but yes, I mean, uh, I want to talk about this. I'm very passionate about the impending erosion. So that, that was actually my latest research. Uh, there are multiple ways to treat these. One very popular way and probably the most commonly used technique out there is, is performing a distal corporoplasty in which we make an incision on the side of the erosion uh, or, or the impending extrusion. 
and the surgeon finds you know the surgical capsule, you incise the surgical capsule, and you redirect just the tip of the implant behind that capsule, and then you, you can even use the capsule to close it. Almost two years ago, uh, one easier technique, this was published by Cartman, uh, Eddie Cartman in, in California and, and Rafael Carrion. They published the use of a, they call it the distal biologic cap, in which they use a tutoplast or, or some other cadaveric tissue, and they place it as if it was like a condom around the tip of the implant. And when you bring that, that uh, implant all the way through, it will give an extra layer of tissue to prevent that that implant from eroding. And what I published earlier this year was the use of the extracapsular uh, or the extracapsular tunneling. So through the proximal corporotomy incision, you can incise a capsule, create a channel behind that surgical capsule, and you basically create a new tunnel for that for that implant. And the good thing about that, you don't need to use any extra tissue. You don't have to make any alternate incisions distally that could potentially increase your risk of, inf uh, of infection. So you will go where you did the, or, or more or less where you did the, corp the original corporotomy, mm -hmm. take out the tubing. I mean, you right. take out the, 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 cylinders. the implant on that side and then just recreate another channel right along the, the other one. So it depends again. I take many things into consideration. If okay. it's a self pay, <laughs> if it's a self pay patient who the implant was recently, was recently placed, or, uh, it's just like something that's very, that's easier to just get, you know, or tackle through a proximal corporotomy. Sorry, sorry, through a distal corporoplasty, I would just do the distal corporoplasty. Uh, if the implant has been there for many years or, or the implant is not inflating now to the mask because the guy has lost a little bit of fluid or the implant is not working. Then I would, I would just take everything out, do that, you know, on that side, I would do that extra capsular tunnel and then just get the implant in. I've had guys, for example, that they have two, you know, both sides are creating an impending erosion. And for those guys, I would do that extra capsular tunnel bilaterally. And again, the good thing about it is you're creating a, you're going through a different space within the corporal tissue. That new space will collapse the previous space. There's no risk of that implant being in contact with that capsule and it should buy them several years without them having uh, any problems with, you know, with impending erosions. So if the impending erosion is, let's say, lateral in the, lat in the lateral axial of the chaff or, or mm -hmm. uh, would you try to go medially then to use that tissue as a barrier? Yeah, so you could, yeah, you can definitely do that. Uh, again, the extra capsule tunnel does not work for everybody. I've had guys, for example, who have like very thin corpora's and there's literally no space around that capsule. Um, and for those patients, I have to make a distal corporoplasty, especially for, for that scenario that you just described. If the, if the impending erosion is lateral, sometimes the easiest thing to do is just do a, a distal corporoplasty. You incise that capsule, both laterally and medial direct that implant, you know, behind that medial capsule and just use that capsule as an extra layer to cover it. And in those cases, would you do a ventral incision or how you will expose the penis? So usually for those distal corporoplasia, I do a lateral incision. Just go straight lateral. Okay. That's correct. Just straight lateral right next to that, that impending erosion. Okay. And that will cause any problems, I mean, near any problems in the skin in that area that, that will create infection or something, I don't know. 
everything is possible. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but but again, but probably I mean, it's easier. They're definitely easier to expose that area that you want to work on. Of course, of course. I mean, and for those cases, again, you treat it like if it was a full removal. Uh, you're going to wash it out very well. Okay. Uh, make sure that 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 doesn't get infected. There's a, one of the techniques that's used for this distal corporal plasty is actually use a stitch to fix it at the level of the glands. Perito Perito uses that, and and again, I mean, th these are there's research uh, articles describing all these techniques, and I think there's even videos uh, in the VJPU and the Video Journal of Prosthetic Urology. And these are okay. free access, open access. You don't need to subscribe or anything. You just go in there, and everything's accessible to you guys. Perfect. So we definitely need to check those videos out, including your videos for the patients. And, and what do you, do you give the patient? I mean, like, like a card with, with your YouTube channel or you just tell them, Hey, go to YouTube. I just tell them, Hey man, go to YouTube, put my name hey, <laughs> and, and, and you, the, will, you will find the videos. Perfect. Uh, and again, it really, I mean, know your audience. Uh, there are guys who do not want to see, you know, videos. They don't want to see, they're like, doc, just fix it. I don't, I don't have to gut to, to see, you know, such a surgery. So for those guys, I try to avoid them from, you know, <laughs> giving, you know, telling them about my YouTube, uh, channel, but I, I have many guys who come in that they found me through the YouTube channel. And for those, I tell them like, Hey man, there's a video about that. Um, or they are wondering, say, Hey doc, well, how can you fix this? Like, I mean, we haven't talked, for example, about proximal perforations. How do you fix that? I mean, I, there's a vid, I have a video, uh, explaining how I fix those things. And that way, these guys know what they're getting themselves into. I tell them like, Hey man, exactly what you saw in that video is what I plan on doing on you. And that way, you know, I mean, I have before and after pictures, I have before and after pictures in my phone and I show them. Um, and that way, you know, they have a better understanding of what they're getting themselves into. Yeah. And, and I guess, I mean, also for the educational videos, I mean, that's very, very, very helpful in terms of, of, of that patient having some questions and, and you'll give, provide the answer through the educational video. So finally, I want, I mean, and like you mentioned, I mean, we can talk about a couple of hours about each topic of this or any situation, uh, but let's talk about uh, probably the most serious complication of all, which is the glance ischemia. And you mentioned a little bit before, w what type of patient do you have to have uh, like a, a, a high suspicion that it might happen or, or is it, is it something that might happen because of pure technique? It is something just that the patient, because of poor vascular flow or conditions, is he more prone for that? I mean, fortunately, my fortunately for me, before I started practice, uh, Steve Wilson and a group of other surgeons they 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 wrote this article back in 2017, um, and they were looking specifically at what were the preoperative risk factors and what were the intraoperative risk factors for developing glans ischemia. I've only seen one in my patient cohort and the guy had all the risk factors. <laughs> so, uh, I wasn't surprised when it happened and I'll tell you how I managed it. But before that, what you were talking about, what are the risk factors? Again, a chronic smoker, you know, a guy who smokes two packs a day, he's also diabetic and you had to do a degloving incision for Peyronie's disease. And you had to do a complex reconstruction, you know, for that, uh, peyronie disease. Again, that's a guy who is at extremely, uh, high risk of developing glance ischemia. Uh, so again, you know, make sure that if you have a guy who's, you know, a chronic smoker, try to get them to at least quit for several weeks or at least tone it down, or at least those first few days, 
don't smoke because again it can be difficult to to reverse it once it starts developing right in terms of my patient i mean i'll tell you the the story with my patient he was a chronic smoker uh he wasn't diabetic fortunately but he was a chronic smoker and he had really bad peronies 90 degree curvature and i had to do multiple incisions uh, like i described to to fix his um uh, to fix his peronies i did not do a big loving incision fortunately but the guy i remember i will never forget i mean that that was early on uh when i was in practice and the guy i used to admit my patients post-op and post-op day number one i go into a round on this guy and the guy's nowhere to be found the guy was outside smoking <laughs> So I'm like, dude, I mean, you cannot smoke. I mean, this, you had a really, you know, a high risk surgery. Um, you have to avoid that. The guy was doing well one week later. Again, this was one week, not several days. And again, usually for my patients, I tell them, say, hey, send me a picture of the glands. For all my peronis patients, I have them send them pictures of their glands in the first 48 hours. Because most of the time you will start seeing changes in the, in the first 48 hours. This guy was doing what was doing well, but one week after his surgery, he called me. He said, Hey doc, my glance feels very, very cold. And I'm like, uh oh, red flag, right? I tell him it's like, hey, send me a send me a picture. And it looked kind of dusky. He already looked kind of dusky. It was a little bit grayish. So what I started doing for that guy, I started uh, start I started him on daily Cialis right away to start bringing some blood flow into his glands. And then several days later, this was the day that I was in Dallas preparing for my oral boards. <laughs> <laughs> I receive a call with a picture. He said, hey, doc, look at my, you know, look at my penis. And he, you know, hold and behold, he had ischemic changes in his glands. Fortunately, there were just patches. And I told him, go to the emergency room right away. I, I called my partner. It's like, hey, man, I have this guy. You know, please go in and see him. And I can even show you the pictures. His entire ventral incision was black, like wow. black. And then the glass, he just had like, you know, a few sp uh, spots, but they looked very, very superficial. The rest of the glass looked nice and pink and healthy. So while I kept him in the, in the hospital, I deflated the implant, you know, all the way. And I told him, hey, man, what we should do is take this implant out, but we can, you know, risk it and see how you do. Because, again, it looked very superficial and it was already calcified. I mean, he had like a dark, you know, SR. It was already dry. It wasn't wet. Wow. Uh, so he had like a dry gangrene right at the top of the glands. So I told him, hey, man, let's see how you do. I started him on every other day. He was taking 20 milligrams of Cialis for like three weeks. And the guy ended up doing well. The, the, those scabs, they fell off. So you never had to remove the implant. I never had to remove the implant wow. again. And that's part of what I, what I ask you. I mean, cause before you, you could round on the patient the next day. I mean, those mm -hmm. patients usually stay one more, one night. Uh, but now all pa most patients are, I mean, I was, uh, say almost all patients are discharged that same day. So if you get that planning ischemia the next day. If they're not looking for it, maybe, I mean, if you leave a, a bunch of bandages around and they don't see the glands, it's more difficult really to, to, to diagnose at the moment. And thank you for mentioning that. Cause that, that's another thing that I actually even forgot to mention. So yes, I mean, if you have a compressive bandage, if you have a coband, don't leave that, you know, uh, super tight, even if it's right after surgery, you're concerned about edema, you can place a, I always place a coband for these peronis cases, but I place it very, very loose. And I tell them the first thing you're going to do tomorrow morning is take that bandage off. 
Okay. Um, you don't want to be compressing the shaft for too long, uh, especially if you did a degloving incision. Uh, you want to make sure that that you minimize the risk of that glance ischemia because when it happens, it happens. And I've heard so many disasters <laughs> no. uh, from from colleagues. And again, fortunately, that that has had that has been my only the only time that I've seen it uh, in my patient cohort. And again, I told the guy as soon as he stopped smoking, I told him stop smoking or your penis is going to fall off. And the guy, I mean, from two packs a day to zero <laughs> to zero cigarettes. <laughs> I, I, I think that, 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 that if that doesn't get you to quit, nothing will. So yeah, and and the guy, I mean, he he ended up doing very well, and and yeah, I mean, he he was successful. Good. So Jonathan, I think that's it for now. Uh, thanks for being here uh, in back table again. I will have you again in the future. I will talk about something else or more penile implant, testosterone, and men's health. I mean, you, you do all those things. Uh, so, so we have definitely a bunch of top, topics to talk. Of course. Of course. Thank you. I mean, thank you for having me. Thank you for, for the, everybody in the background for the back table urology. I am a believer. I'm a follower. I'm a subscriber. <laughs> um, and, uh, and hopefully this can continue to grow again. You guys are doing an amazing job. And yes, man, ha have me back. We can talk about Peyronie's and everything that we can do for these guys. Uh, I mean, we're still learning for all these things so, uh, about these topics. So it's always uh, good to have a refresher. Perfect. Thanks, man. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too, man. Yeah.